So, where did we come from? The, the answer to that question, it determines our identity. Am I here a, an illusion? An intelligent ape? Or a person created in the image of God himself? The answer to the question, where did we come from, it determines our sense of meaning and purpose. Am I just here by chance? Just a random occurrence with no ultimate meaning to my life? Or is my life filled with meaning from beginning to end? The answer to the question, where did we come from, it also determines accountability. Am I accountable to no one? Or to some spirit or a human power? Or am I accountable to God? Genesis 1 verse 1, the first page of the Bible. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. For centuries, the verses we just read, for centuries, the book of Genesis, it, it framed the worldview for those living within Western culture. It answered those questions of identity and purpose and accountability. But today, many believe that the worldview presented by Scripture is obsolete. It's been shredded by what some call the perfect storm. That language, the perfect storm, it comes from a storm that uh, was, was, uh, came up against the state of Massachusetts, the coast of Massachusetts in 1991. In October of 1991, there were actually three storms that came together to form the uh, most powerful storm in recorded history. There was a hurricane and then energy flowing from the Great Lakes and a frontal system sweeping through New England. And those three storms formed or, or created an apocalyptic situation on the Atlantic. In fact, boats were facing waves 30 meters high. It inspired a movie with that title, The Perfect Storm, starring George Clooney, if you're interested. That point is not really that important for this message. <laughs> Dr. James Emery White, in his book, The Rise of the Nuns, Nun is N-O-N-E-S, the non-religious, not N-U-N-S, The Rise of the Nuns, the non-religious, he suggests that there has been a perfect storm in the Western world. Um, the teachings of Copernicus, uh, of Charles Darwin, of Sigmund Freud, coming together to create the perfect storm in the Western world. Uh, Nicholas Copernicus, of course, he de demonstrated that the, the earth uh, was not at the center of the universe, but that we actually live in a heliocentric world, a sun-centered cosmos. And for many, this undermined the teachings of the church. Church leaders believed that the earth had to be at the center in order to preserve their understanding of the special nature of God's creation on earth. And so when the church responded to Copernicus, the findings of Copernicus and said, that's heresy, over time it undermined the credibility of the church and its teaching. Charles Darwin, of course, he assaulted the church's understanding of creation. 
In his book, The Origin of the Species, he contended that the origin of all life, of human life included, could be accounted for without our Creator. He didn't account for the origin of all things, but he argued that we came to be through a process of natural selection and genetic mutations, and many found his argument, and many find his argument to this day to be very compelling. And then Sigmund Freud, he worked within the realm of psychology, and he said, well, we, God exists just because we want him to. God is actually a projection of our desires. We want there to be a God, and so we imagine him to be. Summarizing the impact of these three storms in the Western world, one, God exists because we want him to. Secondly, we're nothing more than a random product of natural selection. And third, the teachings of Scripture regarding the beginning of the cosmos, they're just unfounded. So, Genesis 1 is wrong. And many in the church have found themselves unable to face these 30-meter-high waves within academia. Christians often find themselves overwhelmed by the winds of skepticism. Yesterday, here in British Columbia, we faced some wind. And of course, we thank God that we're in BC because in Edmonton it snowed and eastern Canada is under floodwaters. Let's keep them in our prayers, seriously. But we face some wind. And many find it difficult to stand up to the winds of skepticism. They lose their confidence in the scriptures. The justification we often hear for leaving the Bible behind is that, well, everybody knows it's out of date. It's antiquated. Everybody knows that it's full of errors, blatant contradictions. Everyone knows. So in our educational system, what is taught is the scientific theory of evolution. That's the explanation for the origin of things, of all things. Most people haven't actually read the scriptures. If you have a conversation with someone outside of the church today, and often even people who are within the church, they haven't actually read the scriptures. And so if you ask, okay, well then just show me an error or a blatant contradiction, they're unable to do that. So what is Genesis about? The Hebrew title for the book of Genesis is in the beginning. It's the first word in the Hebrew text. And Genesis most certainly is about the beginning of all things. It lays the foundation for a biblical worldview. The Greek title is the word that we have, Genesis. It means source, origin. And that's an apt title for the book of Genesis because it is about the origin of all things, the origin of the cosmos, the origin of the created order, the origin of humanity, uh, the, the origin of the nations, the origin of civilization, the origin of sin, the origin of the gospel story, the origin of all of the great themes that are traced throughout Scripture. Genesis, it communicates truth in a beautiful way artful way. And all of scripture assumes that Genesis is a true and authoritative account of the origin of all things. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. And we'll see that God not only breathes out scripture, but that he actually breathes all things into being. So the title of the series, Origins coming right from the title of the book, Genesis. 
And the chapters that we'll be looking at in the coming weeks are chapters one through three. Two subjects of history are introduced, God and humanity. And the great questions, our great questions are addressed. Where did we come from? Why are things as they are? Nature, human beings, gender, relationships, purpose. What does it mean to be human? And why so much pain? And where is hope found? The stage for the gospel story is set. The stage for the story of God relating to humanity. So, let's begin today by listening to Scripture. Again, page one of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. These verses provide us with a way of seeing a worldview. And when we read these verses, we often miss the perfect storm that was brewing in the ancient world. You see, Genesis 1 through 3 were initially a tract, a message, a gospel for the ancient world. An ancient world that had assumptions about the spiritual realm, about humanity, about the cosmos. Interesting. First point in your outline. The biblical worldview clashes with ancient and 21st century worldviews. The clash that we experience today is not totally unique. It is not the same as the ancient world, but it is not entirely unique. As Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. Our challenge today is not unlike that of those who worship God in the ancient world. Gordon Wenham, commentator on Genesis, he writes this, Genesis is thus a fundamental challenge to the ideologies of civilized men and women, past and present, who like to suppose their own efforts will ultimately suffice to save them. So, what was Genesis challenging in the ancient world? At least five things were assumed to be true in the ancient worlds of Egypt and Babylon. One, matter is eternal. Many continue to believe this to be true. Matter is eternal, and it's infused with the divine, what we call pantheism today. Secondly, the universe, it just erupted from a battle between the gods. And the celestial bodies, the stars, and human bodies, well, they're made up of the corpses and blood of gods who died in battle. Three, the gods and goddesses, they're morally weak. They're unpredictable. You never know what they're going to do. They're fallible. They have competing agendas. They have limited power. Fourth, we humans, we were created as an afterthought to provide food for the gods, to provide houses for the gods to live in. And so, five, our fate, the fate of human beings, it's dependent on the whims of gods and goddesses. And we need to make sacrifices in the temples to manipulate the spiritual realm for our benefit. Imagine living in that world. The unpredictability of that world. How difficult it would be to try to navigate life never knowing what you should do, when you should do it, trying to somehow make the divine work in your favor. And the sad news is, is that many around the world to this day live within that reality. The language may have changed a little bit, 
But the foundational beliefs continue to be the same. So into this world, Scripture proclaims, in the beginning, at the beginning of time, in the beginning, God, into the ancient world of many gods and goddesses with competing agendas, Scripture proclaims a world created and ruled by the one and only God. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. God, his name in Genesis 1 is Elohim. That name, it carries uh, with it that God is almighty. He's all-wise. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's transcendent. He's eternal. It's without beginning. In the beginning, God created. The word created, it's in the singular. The one and only God created. That verb, it always has God as its subject in the scriptures. It always refers to initiating something new. God created something new. That verb in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it refers to a completed act. Completed act of, of creation. It cannot mean that God then began a process of creation. What did he create? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Those two words, the heavens and earth, they have to be taken together. It's like when we say today, he worked day and night. It means he worked all the time. God created the heavens and the earth. God created the cosmos in its totality. Everything out of nothing. So scripture begins by laying the foundation of the biblical worldview. God created the cosmos in its totality. Nothing exists outside of his domain. That was really good news in the ancient world. And it continues to be good news to this day. The first statement describes God's first act of creation. The origin of the cosmos. Sometime before the first day, God creating matter and energy and space and time. In recent years, the scientific findings of or work of Stephen Hawking and others has demonstrated that any reasonable model of the cosmos, any reasonable cosmological model, that is, any model in which the universe continues to expand throughout its history, the only models that will permit the existence of physical life, these models, they require an actual beginning of space and time. Implying that the universe was initiated by a causal agent, some cause, some creator, operating outside of space and time. The book of Job describes this first act of creation, God speaking. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? The wonder of creation, it reveals God's immeasurable power and might, his bewildering, bewildering imagination and wisdom, his immortality, his transcendence. Maybe you have sat on a BC mountain in the summer, and because of the cold, you could not sleep, and so you spent your night gazing at the stars, the wonder of God's creation. A typical galaxy contains billions of individual stars. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, contains 200 billion 
stars. It's mind-boggling. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, this giant spiral rotating in space with arms reaching out like a pinwheel. And the sun, one star on one arm of the pinwheel. And that's our galaxy. And there are many others there. The universe is awe-inspiring. Let's continue reading. Verse 2. The earth was out without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The starting point surprises us a bit. Prior to the six days of creation, the earth is without form. It's disordered. It's chaotic and void. It's empty. The earth is disordered and empty, meaning it's unproductive. It's uninhabited. And God will order and fill the cosmos. Fill it with life. Genesis 1 is this majestic account of God bringing order and life to the cosmos, executing a cohesive, purposeful plan. Verse 2b. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That statement, it just creates a sense of expectancy. 2b in your outline. The peaceful presence of God creates expectancy over what is disordered and empty. There. When the cosmos was disordered and empty, the presence of God created a sense of expectancy. When we, in our personal lives, experience chaos or emptiness, the presence of God in our lives generates hope, creates expectancy. God is present, so something will happen. So here in in verse 2, the earth lies in darkness, inhospitable to life, but the Spirit of God is hovering over the dark abyss. God is transcendent over all things, yes, above, but he's present. We call it the imminence of God. The personal sovereign God is over all things, but he's present to act, and he's sovereign even over the deep, deep darkness. Sets everything in place with consummate skill. He creates everything. He orders all things. He structures all things to display his glory. Dr. Hugh Ross an astronomer and theologian, has written in his book, The Fingerprint of God, the following. Our universe is a just right universe. The universe has a just right gravitational force. If it were larger, the stars would be too hot and would burn up too quickly and too unevenly to support life. If it were smaller, the stars would remain so cool, nuclear fusion would never ignite and there would be no heat and light. The universe has a just right speed of light. If it were larger, stars would send out too much light. If it were smaller, stars would not send out enough light. Are you blessed? Reading some more. The universe has a just right polarity of the water molecule. If it were greater, the heat of fusion and vaporization would be too great for life to exist. If it were smaller, the heat of fusion and vaporization would be too small for life's existence. Liquid water would become too inferior a solvent for life chemistry to proceed. Ice would not float, leading to a runaway freeze-up. We could conclude that there is no chance that such a universe could create itself apart from an intelligent Designer, you can look at the sun's luminosity history, consider the design of the DNA molecule, study the just right average distance between the stars. God's fingerprints are everywhere. The cosmos is laced with harmony and consistency and beauty. He has designed the cosmos perfectly to reflect his glory. All the physical features of the universe, including the characteristics of our solar system, 
are just right to suit the needs of life, especially human life. Romans 1, 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So our study of the cosmos tells us that God is not unpredictable or careless. Science reveals to us God's design. So for this reason, scientific research is not a fearful exercise for the Christian. We are not afraid of what we might discover. The book of general revelation, the book of nature, and the book of specific revelation, the scriptures, they are not in conflict with one another. Let's continue reading. And God said, verse 3, God speaks the created order into existence out of nothing. He speaks it into being. He doesn't fight with anyone to order the universe. He just speaks. He speaks into the dark abyss to transform it into a magnificent, ordered, and balanced cosmos. He is the soloist, singing creation into being. Everything comes into being as an expression of his divine will and purpose through the agency of his word. So creation isn't a part of his being? No. But it's all dependent on him for its existence, its sustenance. Listen to Paul's words on Mars Hill in Athens. Acts chapter 24, sorry, 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being." So what are the implications of this biblical worldview? Well, this was good news in the ancient world, and it's good news for us today. God is sovereign, all-powerful. We live under his sovereign care. We're not subject to the whims of a god or a goddess or a spirit or some force out there. We're not just here by chance. God created the cosmos. The material world is not infused with the divine. Human beings, we don't exist to provide food for God. No, God cares for us. He provides for us. We're not here being exploited by God. God blesses us. He favors us. You see, this new way of seeing the cosmos, it changed everything. It actually made science possible. God spoke into being a cosmos in which science is at home. A worldview that made good science possible. So, if you remember nothing else this morning, remember this. Know that we have every reason to believe in God as our creator. Know that we have every reason to believe in God as our creator. In humility, we need to recognize that sometimes both scientists and theologians arrive at incorrect conclusions regarding scripture and the natural world. But no conflict necessarily exists between the scriptures and the natural world. 
both the scriptures and the natural world provide trustworthy, reliable revelation from God. Both testify to God's attributes and handiwork. The Bible, it's divinely inspired. It's preserved revelation. Its words are rich in meaning. If there are apparent conflicts in our minds between what we find in Scripture and the natural world, well, it's not an opportunity to assume that they are necessarily in conflict. It's an opportunity to study more. Science and Scripture are not irreconcilably at odds. Like Paul, we can stand on the Mars hills of our day and ask the question, so what do you think? Where did we come from? We don't live in a world that's familiar with the Scriptures. We don't live in a world that's familiar with the biblical worldview. We live in a world where there are many different understandings, many different ideologies. We live in a world largely ignorant of the Scriptures. An Episcopalian priest in South Carolina, which is in the Bible Belt of America, uh, uh, he was talking to a couple. They had come to him for some counsel, and they had a yellow pad with the questions of their teenage son. And one of their questions was this. What is that guy doing hanging there on the plus sign? So just the question itself reveals the level of ignorance The teenage son doesn't know what to call the plus sign. And he has no idea around the name of the person hanging on it. We live in a world that is not familiar with the scriptures. Unfortunately, very often within the church, people are not familiar with the teachings of scripture. In Paul's day, on Mars Hill, in Athens... It was a marketplace of ideas. All kinds of different ideologies, different options, different gods littering the landscape. The average person didn't know Abraham from an apple. And there Paul, he finds a way to talk to the minds of his hearers. He finds an altar to an unknown God and he asks the question, What if I could tell you the name of that unknown God? He engages them in conversation. And how does he do that? He goes right back to creation. Look at what he says in Acts 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in temples made by by man. And on he goes. Our generation is searching for meaning. It's searching for purpose. A staggering number of ideologies. We have every reason to just ask the question, where did we come from? What do you think? We can build bridges with people by asking good questions. And the truth is that our world does not offer that many different options, that many different explanations for where we came from. One, of course, is the evolutionary perspective. We came here by chance through a process of natural selection and genetic mutations. And here we are, randomly, but our lives have no ultimate meaning and purpose. That's one option. Another one proposed by Richard Dawkins, who's one of the new atheists, he says that we were seeded by aliens. Now, he says that because he totally rejects 
the God of the scriptures. But from my perspective, that is a real stab in the dark. A third option is that we're here as a result of a process of reincarnation. That means that I'm here as an illusion and I, my personal identity really means nothing and my future is one of nothingness. I will just be absorbed into the universal energy. That's another option. And the fourth option is that God created us. The one and only God created us in his image. And we have every reason to believe in God as our creator. Into our lives, God says, let there be light. He speaks light, revelation, life into the darkness of our world, into the darkness of our personal lives. As we study the cosmos in the scriptures, we discover that God is almighty, that he is good, that he's unchanging. We discover that he's created us in his image for his purposes and that we are, yes, accountable to him. And for many, that's the crux of the matter. Jacob Lowen an anthropologist, he was studying at the University of Washington, so he was working on his doctoral dissertation, and his advisor, in reading his work, observed that Jacob believed in a cause, a creator. And so his advisor asked him, uh, reading your work, it appears that you believe in a creator. And Jacob responded, well, there is design in the cosmos, and we see design in cultures around the world. And then his advisor asked, okay, if we believe in a creator, do we have to submit to him? And Jacob responded, well, if we do have a creator, then it would be logical that we would be accountable to him. And his advisor immediately replied, then I don't want him. And I believe for many this is the crux of the matter. Our desire to be autonomous, to not be accountable to God, and the pressure of the dominant worldview, these two forces within our souls lead us to dismiss completely the revelation that we find in Genesis chapter 1. We want to be free of God and be accepted by those around us. But if we seriously study the cosmos and the scriptures, we see God's design, we see his attributes, his creation, we discover that God is transcendent, yes, but he is also imminent. He is present with us, involved with us. We discover that we've been created through Jesus and for Jesus, for his glory. We discover that Jesus is the light of the world, bringing order to our chaos, shining his light on our darkness. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Six, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the face of Jesus, we see that God is personal, that he is loving. We discover that in Jesus, our lives are filled with meaning and purpose from beginning to end, that he has known us from before the foundation of the world and being created in his image for his purposes. Yes, we are accountable to him, but why would we not want to be if God has created us and he knows us like no other and his will for us is good and acceptable and perfect? 
know that your life is filled with meaning and that you are accountable to your creator. Your life is filled with meaning and the joy of this life is found in being accountable to your creator. So there was a worldview clash in the ancient world. There's a worldview clash in our world today. We have choices to make. If we study the cosmos and study the scriptures, we will see God's design. God created the cosmos in its totality. There's nothing outside of his domain. The presence of God in our world, in our lives, fills us with hope. As we read the scriptures, as we walk with Jesus, we discover that he is our creator, that his plans for us are good. When we're in a moment of chaos, what appears to us to be darkness, Jesus shines his light into our hearts and fills us with hope. We have every reason to believe in God as our creator. The great joy of life is found in knowing our creator and living under his sovereign hand according to his will. May we all find our way, as Paul says, to God, in whom we live and move and have our being. Amen? Let's stand for prayer. So, Father, we do thank you for the wonder of the cosmos that you have created. What a joy to observe creation around us in this season. The signs of life everywhere. And we thank you, Father, that you have given us life, gifted us with life. Thank you for the joy of knowing you. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus. Jesus, thank you for revealing the Father. Thank you that you're present by your Spirit to guide us into all truth, to teach us all things. And so, Lord, if some of us are here with questions in our minds and hearts, may we present them to you. Thank you that you're present to speak. Thank you for your written word for the revelation preserved for us. We are grateful, Lord. Lord, may we stand in our day, not arrogantly, but confident in you, confident in your word, proclaiming the good news because our world desperately needs to understand that you exist, that you have spoken the cosmos into being, that our lives are filled with meaning, are filled with purpose, and that we can know you. And so thank you, Lord, for your revelation to us. May we be your mouthpiece this week for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.